0: Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything Is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. You shouldn't have to feel weird about sending out your scheduling link. SavvyCal is a new scheduling tool that allows recipients to overlay their calendar right on top of yours. This way, you can find the time in an instant without having to switch back and forth between tabs. You'll love it, whoever you're sending it to will love it, and they'll love you for it as well. Create a free account at SavvyCal.com slash EIM, and you can also get your first month of a paid account free by using the code EIM. On the show today is Catherine Lavery. Catherine is the co-founder and CEO of Best Self, which went from zero to eight figures in revenue in less than two years. I wanted to bring her on because she successfully crowdfunded four products And they won Shopify's build-a-business competition in 2016 and then build a bigger business competition in 2017, making Best Self the only company to win both awards consecutively. It's pretty impressive. In our conversation, we'll hear about how she played Monopoly with Shark Tank investor Damon John. Yep, that's right. Forged partnerships with TikTok creators and the campaigns that have worked surprisingly well, as well as the ones that have flopped. Enjoy. So to start out, I love asking my guests. Did you ever think that you'd be CEO of an e-commerce business for a living?
1: Oh, no, I had no idea this was even a job growing up, which (laughs) is funny because I had an eBay store when I was 13 and I did some drop shipping back then. And I remember, you know, trying to get off of eBay and start my own store. And it was so difficult to set something up, which is funny because, you know, now we have Shopify, I didn't actually think you could do this for a living. I was just doing it for, you know, pocket money.
0: Yeah. So what, what did you do before best self, which we'll get to here in a second? Like, can you give me like a brief kind of time time timeline and walk me through how you got to where you are today?
1: Yeah. So I used to be an architect. So, you know, when I didn't know that you could be an entrepreneur for a living, I went to architecture school, did the whole, you know, undergrad diploma masters, got a job in New York, moved to the States. I went to uni in in England and Scotland, and then I moved to New York. I'd always wanted to live in New York, so like that was the goal. And then after about two years in that job, well, I had some issues with like, I was getting paid a very low amount of money. I was working in CNRs like 80 hours a week. Sometimes I'd stay in the office all night. So technically the more I worked, the less I got paid. And Mm. I just, Realized, you know I'm looking at my bosses and they had four kids and I kind of looked up to them as entrepreneurs but also I saw them working all the time and that was sort of like okay if this is the goal I don't want that goal sort of thing if I can see the future and so I'd started a, a like a side hustle so basically the first month I, I lived in the States I didn't you know my job got pushed off for five weeks So I started just having to figure out stuff because I didn't come with money that I could just bum around New York for a month. I came with like, you know, 780 bucks or something like that. So I'm like learning how to format Kindle books for people and do logos and literally do everything. And then I was just designing stuff for fun. And that turned into people wanting things on posters and things like that. And so I started doing that on the side of my architecture job. So that, was just me posting on tumblr i was not a marketer in fact i didn't like sending emails at all i would collect them and eventually i had to hire someone to send the emails because i would find it so painful because it would get sent and if someone (laughs) unsubscribed i was like well i knew we shouldn't have sent that email (laughs) so i was just really bad at marketing and whenever i would make a bunch of sales it wasn't like, oh, this thing that I planned worked. It was like, oh, I wonder what blog talked about me today. So it was very much like whenever someone else would post something, I would get a bunch of sales. So it was very much accidental marketing more than things that I was doing on purpose. But that became like my sort of cash flowing business that was doing well and allowed me to quit my architecture job. But it wasn't something that I thought I was gonna do forever. It was more of like what I call a freedom vehicle of like, You need something to get out of your job, but then you'll have more time to figure out what you want to do long term.
0: Yeah, I think that that transitional period is really interesting. I'm sort of in the thick of it myself a little bit. I call it a entrepreneur purgatory where you like have one foot into your own stuff and then you have another foot into, you know, someone else's vision, project, business, etc. And you're kind of like straddling both sides. And it's not easy, but instead of going cold turkey and kind of just jumping Uh, to fit into the other side. You can kind of ease yourself into it a little bit. I'm curious, one of the things you mentioned that kind of stuck out to me was the the architecture background because as a kid, one of my favorite movies was Click with Adam Sandler and how he sort of like fast forwards through his whole life and he's ironically an architect and I think from an early age, I kind of figured out, okay, well, maybe architect isn't like the, the route. I want to go down for those kind of same reasons and you obviously had to experience that firsthand, kind of learn it a little bit of the hard way. But was there like a moment or, or something that sort of clicked for you and like, instead of, you know, cause you could really go out and do anything, wasn't just going from architect to you know, entrepreneur, you could have gone out and got a different job. What was it in particular that was the catalyst to get you to sort of have a bigger vision and start something like best self and like all the designs you we were putting out rather than just getting a, another normal job?
1: So I think when I was an architect, when I started the thing on the side, when I wasn't making enough money, and I actually, I don't believe in just, you know, quitting your job and running off into the sunset. And if you don't have a plan, that's, so I was very much mitigating my risk. So I was way making more than what I was making as a salary when I left, but I'd always grown up, like my parents have normal jobs. So I quit like the evening of my 26th birthday and I was very much like, oh my God, I'm unemployed now. Like, what am I gonna do? So, but I always thought, oh, I can get a job. So if this doesn't work out, like the fallback is I'll just go and get a job. And I've always worked from when I was a teenager. So I wasn't scared of working. It was more of when I got a taste of, oh, I could work for myself. What's that like? And at first actually I I took, I didn't want to leave my bosses in the lurch. So I wanted to finish off the projects on site that I had because it's really hard to take someone to take over your jobs when you're in construction. So I was like, yeah. okay, I'll finish these, but I'm, I'm only going to be on site. I'm not going to be in the office because that way I'm finishing those projects and getting paid a little bit, but I have a lot more free time to do my own stuff. And because I'm thinking, what if I quit my job and I turn into a bum? Like, what if I just want to sleep all day and like watch TV? You know, all the, I'm like having all these fears coming up of me like having a complete personality transplant and turning into someone else. And so like a week into doing the part-time thing, I was like, oh yeah, I'm totally fine. I'm not gonna become this like cyborg person. And so I just, at that point, getting a job would be a fallback. And actually sometimes I kind of miss having a job. Like I miss having a job where I don't think about it when I leave and I just can like completely switch off. And I also love learning from people and I love learning things. So there's times where I see jobs come up of interesting companies and I'm like, oh, that looks really fun. I would love to do that. And then I remember, oh, you have a business like that. that's You're not going to do that. But that, that like that is something that I would do if I if I both needed a job, wanted a job and could learn from the job. So I think people glorify entrepreneurship sometimes when you can get a job at a company and learn a ton and maybe someday start your own thing but you don't have to start your own thing to make a like a big impact
0: yeah yeah 100 percent. i love that sort of balanced perspective because it really isn't as binary as a lot of people make it seem of like oh it's the dream and everyone should become an entrepreneur it's like well not really you know it's yeah it's not all sort of roses and and i forget how the saying goes roses and flowers or something like that
1: yeah can you imagine um, like just leaving work and not thinking about it it's- I, I had a job once like that. It wasn't my architecture job. I took that home with me. Also, I worked in a stationery store when I was doing my masters and I just worked. It was like a retail job and it was the best because I would leave. and like, not one thing about the store would come into my mind until I would come in for the next shift.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. I think, you know, this is maybe this is just my own sort of issue and problem. But I found that personally, maybe, again, this is sort of like maybe more the trade of like an entrepreneur or someone who's a little bit more like takes ownership of things. But I found that even when I had a normal job, I would still be thinking about it off hours. You know, like I'm, I was thinking, like, I'm not getting I'm stressing about it. You know, how much cash do we have in the bank? And like, are we going to hit these goals? <laughs> yeah. And like, I feel like the whole weight of the business is on my shoulders as an employee, which like it's not. But I still felt all the pressure maybe that like mm-hmm. you know, the founder would and uh, yeah that's probably just me you know there's there's other types of jobs i think one of the interesting parts about working in tech especially is that everyone's working remotely and you're sort of part of this machine and engine that is always going rather than like a a retail shop that opens and closes right and uh, yeah sort of like a small cog in the machine but that's definitely one of the big one of the big trade-offs
1: oh for sure and i think like my architecture job i did take it home with me and i was like anxious constantly but to, for the most part, I mean, I wouldn't trade one. But sometimes if people like glorify this idea of being an entrepreneur, it's like, yeah, but you, you don't ever like turn your brain off.
0: Yeah, 100 of percent. One of the other things that stuck out to me from what you mentioned earlier was how you were scared of sending emails. <laughs> and I think we all have that sort of like moment or not all of us are so like shameless in our promotion of who we are and what we do and the things we create. And there's always kind of this fear of like, you know, will I get rejected for the stuff that I create and who I am and what I'm trying to pursue, or even, you know, just sort of this imposter syndrome of what if the things I'm creating aren't good enough or people are going to think I shouldn't be doing these things. Was that always a struggle for you or is it still, or like, did you learn to overcome that sort of feeling of being self-promotional and not wanting to really market what you were doing?
1: I mean I think the key for me was hiring someone to do that as their job but I mean I still struggle sometimes with sending emails because by the time I write it I'm like oh who cares about this like does any am I going to interrupt people's day to tell them about me or like how can I add more value to so I'm always it's a good thing because I'm always like oh how do I add value to, to this email in a way that's going to help the person reading it but it does like hold me back sometimes from sending emails because I I don't w- I don't want to talk about myself or interrupt people's days and so I know that that still holds me back even today and in at best self luckily we have someone that that's their job but for my own like personal stuff I don't send emails a lot because it's up to me to do that which means it doesn't get done
0: yeah yeah I hear you there um, well I would love to talk about uh, best self and sort of dig into all the nuances and, and history and I have a whole bunch of different questions and sort of trails I want to follow on, on that thread but maybe we can start here you know Best Self started as a Kickstarter campaign as I understand and now it's turned into this sort of huge well-known brand has really taken on a life of its own in just a few years maybe about four or five years if I'm not mistaken but I wanted to get your thoughts on like why do you think that the brand and the products have been so successful like what, what was it that has sort of taken off and allowed it to become something that has taken on a a life of its own
1: so i I don't think i expected that when we launched it it would i kind of started the way you start things is like oh how do i make this for myself so i'd done a couple of kickstarters with another business and when it came time to do the best self one you know i had this essentially a moleskin that i'm putting this framework in every day and as a designer I'm thinking, okay, I need to make something so that I don't have to do this every day and it looks better. But I also know that offset, you know, printing is expensive and if I'm creating one of these for myself at the quality that I expect it, that's going to be really expensive. And so the idea behind launching on Kickstarter came from I need this for myself. I have a bunch of friends that told me they want to buy it also. So let let me put it on Kickstarter and that's how we'll fund it. And I think what actu- what happened was that it resonated with people and not in a way of like, oh, we know what we're doing and this is the best thing. It was more of like, this is what I've learned when I did this process. So it didn't come from this idea of um, prescribing information and being like, you have to do this. It was more of like describing how I how I used it and how this worked for me in order to get me where I was. So. Like I used the self journal format of this, these three month goal setting things for, you know, a year and a half before we, we created the product because I'd seen how well it worked for me. I was not an organized person. Like if you saw me in high school, like I was not the organized note taker. I was the person like, even when I was an architect, like what's the latest I can get up to be able to get up, get dressed get on the train and still always be a few minutes late and always be catching up the rest of the day. And so I, I sort of approached it as not a, I've always been organized and this is how I do it and you should do it too. It came from, hey, I've actually been a hot mess for a while. And this is how I've, these are the frameworks that I've put in place and describing it and being like, okay, this is why it works for me. And I think that's kind of how new products have come from, it's like experimental, here's the framework. So it's flexible and that it's a framework and the products are well made, but it's also not like you have to use this in order to become this person. It's just like, this is how I use it. This is how this person uses it instead of this holier than now attitude of how you should use this. And so I think and then another part was just the idea of when I first was getting into this, I'm like, why didn't I learn this stuff at school? And I think, you know, I've, I hit this age where you, you followed the recipe of like, what we're told will have a good life. And what I call it is like a fine life, which is when you're like, oh, how are you? I'm fine. The recipe that most of us are given for life is actually, I'm fine, it's fine, but it's not great, right? And so we get out of school and we do all the right things. and then we we get into the job that we've been working on for years and we realize, oh wait, this is actually not what I want. And when I started getting into personal development and learning all of the stuff, I'm just thinking like, I'm starting to apply it. I'm becoming more organized. I'm becoming more intentional. You know, my business starts doing better. Like life starts looking better. And then I'm actually a little pissed off because I'm like, "Why, why don't we learn this stuff at school? And I think that idea of, you know, teaching people these frameworks will get them much further in life than, you know, trigonometry or things that you'll never use again. And I think that idea also of just sharing both the disappointment in that and in, in how we're brought up, but then also showing people, oh, this is, if you apply this, you can get further than you've been told thus far.
0: Yeah, so the, the products are really born out of Experience and they're born out of even like tapping into this kind of zeitgeist feeling uh, culturally of you know we're all living this fine life. I love that description of like it's fine, it's not not great, yeah. not super enjoyable. You know, uh, slightly depressed, right? On, on teetering on, on depression all the time, and um, it's like and then not finally there's this product.
1: It's this idea of like it's not quite uncomfortable enough that I want to make a change, but I'm not like super excited to get up in the morning
0: right right but then this product comes along and it's the best self journal and it's a bunch of the other sort of expanding product lines that you've created and they they give people some sort of glimmer of hope or newly new inspiration or you know you educate them a little bit on what's possible how to deal with it what to do to kind of get dig them out of that rut right or go from fine to to good or to great and and that's really like you know the value proposition of the whole business right it's just like kind of digging people out of that and showing them a new way of doing things
1: yeah exactly and I, I really enjoyed it because it's worked so well in my life and I never would have expected you know these small daily things if I had just done it earlier like how much further along would I be and and I felt a responsibility to sort of share that in a way where you know there's, it's a privilege, like I used to read on my commute to work, but it's also a privilege to have the time to read all these books and to learn all this stuff. And it's like, well, what? how could you give people sort of 80-20 of what you're learning without them having to spend, you know, 100 hours on all of these books to be able to get it and then figure out which should I apply to my life and, you know, all of that stuff.
0: Uh, I want to turn nerd out a little bit on Kickstarter, personally because I feel like it's this huge i don't know it's it's really scary to me like you have to create this perfect storm of um an amazing you know product or product idea vision for a product you also have to you know really go all in on on marketing and distribution and getting eyeballs on it and then getting people to commit to paying for something that doesn't exist yet right which is like a little bit even harder than getting people to pay for something that already does exist so that's a sort of a tall order and then you have to do it in this really short time frame and actually, you know, go and make it happen. So to me, I'm like, geez, how does anyone pull off a Kickstarter campaign? Because uh, you just, there's so many moving parts to this. But you've launched and funded four projects, I believe, on, on Kickstarter. You've also helped a whole bunch of other people crowdfund as well. Like, what are what are the keys to using a crowdfunding platform like Kickstarter? Or maybe it's you know, another one like IndieGoGo or, you know, some of the other ones that are out there to get your project off the ground and to actually have a successful campaign?
1: Yeah, so I'll try to summarize it. A lot of people will go to these crowdfunding platforms and they expect, you know, the whole build it and they will come idea where they, they are not bringing people to the platform. They're expecting the platform to bring every everyone to them. What I've seen work well is... You bring the first 48 hours are crucial as far as how many people you get backing your campaign. So, building up an email list of people that are interested in the thing that you're selling or have the problem that the product that you created solves, and you know, being strategic with like the funding goal. So, your funding goal should sort of relate to the difficulty of bringing your product to life or the seemingly difficulty of bringing your product to life. So for example, if you are, someone came to me and they were like, oh, I, I did a Kickstarter last year and I, it, it failed, I, it, it didn't hit its goal. And I was like, what was the product? He said a book. I'm like, oh, okay, well, how much did you ask for? He said 100,000. And I said, well, that's way too much. If you don't have an audience already, like the, you asking for 100,000 is a huge ask one for not having an audience, but two for a book, because it just doesn't match the ratio. If you told me I'm trying to make a three D printer, I can see, okay, he probably needs a hundred thousand for that. If you're asking for a hundred thousand for a book, like that doesn't make sense to me. And so having your like you can have an internal goal of a hundred thousand. Like for the self journal, our public goal was fifteen thousand and our private personal we're not going to tell anyone else this goal because they laugh at us. Was two hundred thousand because anyone we told that to, they're like, oh yeah. Even my, my dad was like, he's like, yeah, maybe someday. I'm like, no, I, I, this this time, this day. And I I think if we had asked for, you know, we ended up hitting three hundred and twenty-three thousand or something like that. If we had asked for that, I guarantee we would have gotten way less than that because you're, you're now having people not only, you know, come to Kickstarter, they see this insane goal, you're not even close to hitting it. So you don't have that momentum. People are like, I'm going to wait and see if they fund, even though technically they get their money back, nobody wants to be on board a losing ship. So they're, they're going to wait until you're backed in order to support you because then you look like you're winning and then they'll support you. So I always say have a realistic goal, bring like have a list of people that are interested. I think we funded ours with something like 200 people. We had to hit our goal, which is, which we hit in just over a day. And then from there it went onwards, but having those initial 200 people and creating reward structure that makes sense. So like if your company is just starting, it drives me nuts when I see your company with, you know, the reward is the thing in the video that people want. Nobody wants your t-shirt or your hat or whatever random thing you find on Printful that you're going to put your logo on that doesn't actually add value to your campaign, but it does add a lot of complication to fulfillment. So. It's not good for the people backing and it's not good for you, so just don't do it. People want the thing in the video, an upgraded thing from the thing in the video, two things from the thing in the video, four things, eight things, 10 things. It's very simple. And so don't complicate your reward structure with all the stuff that you're trying to just add in there because nobody wants it, it just complicates things. And then always having a $1 reward level because believe it or not, some people are not going to actually want the thing but they want to support you. So if you have a $1 reward, they can actually put as much on there as they want. But Kickstarter and Indiegogo algorithms reward creators not on the amount of people that are the amount of money people are backing, but the number of backers hitting like your standing, right? So a project could have you know, they could be getting a thousand backers only backing one dollar and they could have 10 backers backing 10, you know, 10, whatever equals a thousand. Like if you had 10 people versus a thousand people, they are going to reward the project with the most backers because think of Kickstarter business model is getting backers to their platform and getting eyes on their sites because most times when people back one project, they'll back multiple. And so you're, their customer acquisition strategy for other projects that they might also back. And so that's why a low value reward level that people can come on there, support you, and then maybe they'll see another project they actually like.
0: Right. Just like follow the business model, follow the incentives, and then like the strategy kind of emerges and becomes clear. And um, it's so fascinating because I feel like Kickstarter is just like this lab of like so many uh, ingredients that you need in marketing all at once. And so you have like all these really clever strategies, like I said, where you want to get like more backers and like the more backers you have, like the more social proof you have. And then like you set the goal to be lower and you make it a lot more achievable. And then, you know, people feel more comfortable sort of committing, even though, like you said, (laughs) really in theory, like you should just be able to, you know, back whatever you want to. And then like, there's no risk. But I think what people are afraid of is that they, they, like I said, they end up backing a loser and they want to see that a lot of people like one, this thing's already going to be funded, but that like it's overfunded, you know, they want to see like, they want to jump on the winning horse, right. And just kind of like bandwagon their way to success. And uh, so, so fast. Well, not everyone is an early adopter, right?
1: And so by putting it lower and you'll get those early adopters and then the, you know, not even late people if you're on Kickstarter, usually earlier than most people, but not everyone is going to take that chance on getting on board because they need the social proof that you're actually backed and it's going to happen in order for them to take out their credit card.
0: Yeah. So the, the interesting part is, like you said, I think one of the first things you said was you want to have that early momentum within the first few days, like reach a kind of substantial you know, amount or milestone or even kind of like get funded. Intentionally, so that you you build that momentum and you have the social proof on your side. So it seems like there's a lot of work that you have to do even before Kickstarter. Like Kickstarter is not uh, step one or or even step zero. It's like step one is sort of building an audience, like building interest. How how do you do that? What does that look like before Kickstarter?
1: So, building, so whenever we launched our Kickstarter, we didn't have the email list of people to send to. So, for the few months before, we were Creating content around topics that the person who would be interested in this product would want. We did a giveaway back when they worked around like productivity tools. So it was like books, apps, bulletproof like we're like okay, what are the product like? We looking around my office like what would I be more interested in doing? Giveaway and and one tool is you could just do a really snazzy thing like a PlayStation or a. MacBook Pro, but then everyone in the world will enter your giveaway, whereas the only people that are going to enter a giveaway with these very niche products are people that would eventually buy this product, and so you have to be, yes you'll get less entries if you do it that way, but they'll be more targeted to people who are interested in the product, which was around productivity. So, great, like writing great content like that was when Medium was just starting, so it was building email, like an email list with that. And I think when we launched the Kickstarter, we had about 2,900 people on our email list, so not, not a ton, but you don't need that many. Again, we needed like 200 people to start. And before, like, there's, it shouldn't be like, oh, our Kickstarter's launched, surprise. It should be like everyone already knows or should know by the time you launch that your Kickstarter is launching. So a friend of mine, they, they launched uh, Nomi. It's like a compostable device. And yeah, I right. knew they were launching, you know, weeks before they were because, well, I heard about it and then I, I, I'm seeing like teaser emails and it wasn't like, oh, by the way, we, we have this new thing launching on Kickstarter. All of the education and, and build up was for people. So on day one, as soon as it launched, they're, they're already clicking the buy button because they already know everything that they need to.
0: Right, you're, you're priming people. You're looping them into the journey. You're explaining what you're doing, why you're doing it. It's sort of the old like, tell people what you're going to do. Or what is it? Tell people... Well, I lost it now. But there's something about like, you basically want to loop people in and tell them what you're going to do before you do them. And then like, and then tell them again, sort of what you just told them. Oh yeah, it's um, like, I'm going to teach same, you this, true. teach
1: them, and then tell them what you taught them.
0: Yeah, exactly. There it is, you know, it much better than I, yeah, that's, that's so fascinating. So then once you actually do have, so bring me back to like when you actually funded the Kickstarter campaign for the, the self journal, what's it like from there, is it just sort of like a race to <laughs> manufacture and like get the product live Are there a lot of other implications or things you have to do along the way to actually get to like the, the real launch and getting it into those backers hands.
1: Yeah, so one thing I would caution people is to not promise a product from a crowdfunding campaign on a certain, like if it's in any way tight, you need to add like 40% of time onto your, onto when you expect to deliver. Like hopefully you can deliver earlier. For us, we finished in, we launched mid-August, finished in mid-September and then we had told people they would have it by Christmas and the U S people had it by Christmas just to buy it. But in like Europe and things, it wasn't until the new year because of like just shipping deadlines and things like that. So I and almost the U S didn't get in time because our original shipper was like, Oh yeah, you know, we're not going to actually pick up the container until, you know, this time. And, or it was like, December 18th and this is like mid-November I'm like well that's impossible and so we're like well I think we just have to get another ship this is not going to work out so it was very much like figuring out as we went along and then in between when you have the crowdfunding campaign you are you know keeping the backers up to date of like what's going on and then also dealing with like okay What's my three PL? Like, who am I going to use for shipping? And luckily, I'd had an e-commerce before that, so I had, like, I had a warehouse for another company for an, for my other art business that I was like, okay, these guys can just do that. And I'm sort of just like taking things that I'd learned from the other stuff that I'd done in order to to build up this these ideas for the new business. But then the new business became much bigger, and so then there's problems that I haven't faced before. And I'm dealing with that, but yeah, it, it, it's just op, you know you deal with so many things. You deal with mark, you deal with product first, you create a product, then you deal with marketing it to launch the crowdfunder, then you have to deal with operations to actually get the product into people's hands, and then you have to create the store, and then you start the whole process over again of like, okay, what are the other pro like, we have this product, but what's the next product, and wh- how do we market that, and you know, what are we doing for online store and all that sort of thing?
0: Yeah, it's huge. I mean, one thing leads to the next and then all of a sudden, you know, you have this, this entire business on your hands and especially bringing a a new physical product to life. I think that's gotta be up there with like one of the hardest things that you can do just with all the logistics and steps along the way. And, you know, God forbid you do something in sort of like the food and beverage industry. (laughs) There's a a whole new set of rules and laws and, obstacles you have to overcome, but eventually, uh, you know, you guys definitely overcame very successful. What it, so, I mean, one of the things that was really interesting, I, I thought as well was, you know, you guys, you, you just got the, the products out in time for Christmas. Things are working. Uh, the best self brand is becoming sort of a, taking on this life of its own. And then you guys enter a couple of competitions. Well, you enter the, the Shopify uh, build a business competition and you ended up winning it twice. it was Shopify build a business and then build a bigger business. Right. what was that experience like? And, and even like walk me through, like, you know, entering the the competition in the first place.
1: Well, it was funny. So I'd actually entered the competition back with the art thing that I had going. I never, like I wasn't even close to the top. Yes. I just saw the video. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. I wasn't, I mean. Anywhere close. I think I had one really amazing month and I might have been in the top like 200 stores, but like not close. But the idea was like ingrained in me. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. And what's funny is the day that our Kickstarter campaign ended, two things happened. One, I got this product in the mail that I had backed on Indiegogo, and it was a while before. But this product—it was called the Pavlok—and it's like this, like, like only weirdos like me would buy it on an Indiegogo. Game. I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll electrocute myself to like stop myself from doing bad habits. That's exactly—that's <laughs> what it was. But they had actually won the Build a Business the year before, so this uh-huh. arrived, and then the day that, so all on the same day, like our campaign ended, this product arrived, and then they had, they announced the competition. So I'm like, well, this is a sign. It's like, we should definitely have to enter this. Is it? I actually made a poster and and put it on my wall of like, and I'm not big into, you know, affirmations or anything, but I was just like, this is the goal is like, we will win this competition. And if we don't win it, like we'll still build a business. So it's fine. But like the big goal was winning this competition. And but then in all, you know, I forget when they told us, but I get this call from Canada on my phone and I was just like no way this this is not possible and so that was the first year and then the year after they did this thing called the build a bigger business which is for companies doing over a million but less than 20 and they they took like the year before and then see how you scaled the business and grew, grew it bigger and so we actually went to Florida when they announced the second competition because Tony Robbins had invited us the year before. And so we went there and the Shopify people were there and they announced this new competition, which I like. I applied for it, but, but it was very much like never expected to, to actually win and just kind of forg- forgot about it. Then, you know, I get this call from Canada, which is always a good sign I'm learning, and they're telling me that we won, and it was funny, because I was going through, at the time, a very personal, like, emotional time, like, I think I just got done crying, to be honest, and I get this call, and then I'm like, oh my god, this is amazing, this is, like, crazy, so, yeah, didn't expect to win it two years in a row, but it's, Shopify are awesome, and I got to, have two one once-in-a-lifetime experiences, twice.
0: Back-to-back, back. yep, twice, back-to-back. Yep. That's, back. Uh, I mean, it's amazing. Kudos, congrats, congratulations, even now. I think it's an nice outstanding achievement. I, I love the I love Shopify and the Build-A-Business competition. It's just genius. I'm also wondering, selfishly, as a marketer, and uh, just trying to nerd out on all things, did that come with any benefit? As Obviously, there's this kind of the social proof and endorsement from Shopify and the award that you can tout, but was there any sort of like, you know, distribution, press, you know, exposure kind of benefit to winning the competitions that, you know, brought in more new business or elevated the brand?
1: I mean, I think it definitely elevated the brand. One thing, so the first competition was in Long, it was at the Gatsby Munch in Long Island, so we were there for five days, and it was an interesting from the second year, and I'll explain why, is because it's in Long Island, you're an hour, hour and a half from New York. And so the, the mentors, so Tim Ferriss and Tony Robbins, they would come in, but they wouldn't like hang out there because you know, they're an hour from New York, so it's easy to come and go. When we were there, so we had our session with Damon and John, and then Damon, I guess, travels with the Monopoly board and, and later he tells me he actually plays monopoly with businesses that he's, but like just people, entrepreneurs, or if he's considering investing, he'll play monopoly because he'll see like how someone plays. So it's like, are they a good loser? Are they a bad loser? Do they try to cheat? Are they strategic? Are they, you know, financially savvy one one guy paid the wrong amount of rent to the wrong person and he's like who's your cfo like stuff like that (laughs) he's like how did you get here (laughs) and so we end up playing for like six hours uh, and so his driver has been out the last two hours and it's just me versus him and after we got done playing he, he ended up winning in the end and but his manager gave me his card and then we ended up like he was an affiliate for our, the product. So he basically just promoted it. Oftentimes he still promotes it. and It's not like a paid thing. Like sometimes he doesn't even use the link that we we gave him. He just like, will promote it. And that's because that's he, he like loves the product, but I don't think if, if we didn't have that one-to-one time, I, I don't think he would have done that. Even after our one-to-one with him, it was the like Monopoly game for six hours that really like sealed the deal. And so, He's also invited us to, like, he had a co-working space in the city, so he invited us to an event with, like, Gary Vee, and there was, like, a Bud Light entrepreneur thing that he was involved in that that he invited me to, to, like, speak at, and so that was good because we were both local to each other, and he would invite us to stuff like that.
0: Oh, it's amazing. I mean, one of the, one of, one of my favorite stories, because um, I feel like, you know, Damon John, Shark Tank investor, you know, big time, you know, founder of FUBU and all around just like this, you know, big personality. And it's one thing to like get investment from him, but it's another thing to like go toe to toe in a competitive, you know, business game like Monopoly. And, and to be able to, I mean, kudos to you for, for going all the way to the end with him and you know, really kind of battling it out. I'm sure there are some people that he just absolutely crushes <laughs> he's probably oh yeah, he was a he was a shark,
1: but he also called me right. a shark, and I was like, that's a real compliment.
0: <laughs> that's yeah, that's the highest compliment you can get.
1: So comparing um so that was in Long Island and then to the build a bigger business was in Fiji. And what was great about that is everyone we're on this we're actually at Tony Robbins resort, and everyone is there together. so so it became much more like, It wasn't this mentor mentee thing of course that was like that but it was more it was actually not even the one-to-one chats that were the best it was the sitting around like a fireplace or like having these experiences that were not like we are going to talk about business now it was very much like very casual and candid and things that wouldn't have happened in Long Island just because you didn't have that depth and so that was that was really good. And actually, a cool story was we're taking a walk on the beach with Toby, who is the uh, CEO of Shopify founder. And he's asking me like how you know how he could make Shopify better. And I'm like giving him all these ideas that are like long term. But then I'm like, hey, actually, one thing that would be amazing is if you could make the upload theme size bigger than. 20 megabytes because our theme we need to do like we have to split up our files and it takes like three or four uploads and so our workflow is just it just takes much longer like very in the weeds literally three days later i get back from fiji and the team are like oh my god it's it's like been updated and i was like oh that's awesome because we've been wanting that for so long and then it was just like a comment to him, very specific. I would like this. And he, he like made it happen.
0: Man, that's one of my favorite things when you talk to, you know, the founder of a company and you sort of give some feedback or some insight, and then it's just like a couple of days later, it's, it's implemented and it's changed. And it's a really like magical kind of like trust building exercise where it's just such a cool experience to deliver on. And then like to be, you know, to receive as well on the customer side.
1: Yeah. So I'm big fan of just Shopify in general as, as a product, but also the team there or it, it made me like one of it was one of those times where I was like, Oh, if I didn't do this, I would totally try to get a job there. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the companies that you are a fan of, I love that. One thing I wanted to, to bring up because, you know, talking through all these amazing experiences and, and accolades and awards, feels like, you know, geez, like things are just going fantastic, but you've actually been really candid on Twitter and your newsletter about your previous business partner for best self and how the partnership sort of went sour and that whole thing. Could you share a bit about that experience and what you learned just because I feel like, you know, even, even though this is a marketing podcast, like it, these are the stories and sort of experiences and things that people need to know and be aware of. And even just, you know, to be able to, to empathize with.
1: Yeah. So I think when I got started with Best Self, it was, I'd done the whole, you know, art store business myself. And I was thinking, okay, I, I want to create this, but I would like a partner in it. And I am not good at paperwork and I'm not, I always, I'm very optimistic. And my my wife and I, we're, we were buying our first house. And that's when I realized we both come from the opposite point of views i'm like oh everything's gonna work out she's like who's trying to you know screw us over (laughs) so together it works really well but in business i i just didn't really think ahead up front and so one of the things i always say to people is i don't really believe in 50 50 partnerships at least the way we did it so it was just 50 50 there was no vesting period Our operating agreement was pretty terrible. There was no like roles and responsibilities in there of like, okay, who's responsible for the what? And then what happens if someone wants to leave or someone wants to go and do their own thing? And, you know, two years into the business in 2018, my ex-partner, he had his first kid and kind of stepped away from the business, but not in a way of like, oh, I'm, I'm actually not gonna be working anymore. It was more of just like disappeared and while his role was mostly taken over, it, it it sort of left me hamstrung in a lot of decisions because it's like, well, it's a 50-50 partnership, yet if you just pop in every now and again and try to undo things that the team has been working on, and it very much was like like divorced parents where I'm the mom and I'm like having the kids do their homework and then the dad will pop in and be like, hey, let's go have fun or let's completely scrap all these things that you're doing. I don't see the point in them. And so it was just very disruptive for the team and just built up a lot of resentment because I'm, you know, we're also getting, you know, 50 50 distributions, but I was the one working all the time. And so that built up resentment. And I'm sure, you know, he had his own issues, I'm sure, of like, I'm not doing things properly or, or however. But basically, we, from 2018, was when it, it was very apparent, but it had been building since like 2016, as far as, oh, things are, but things, here's the thing is like, you can look past things when things are going well. It's easy to just sort of be like, oh, I see some red flags, but I'm not gonna deal with it. That seems like that's a problem for Feature Cat, which came up later. But one thing I would say is like, don't, you know, vest your, vest your equity so you shouldn't walk in 50 50 up front and then if one person leaves they're walking out 50 percent of the business there's it should vest over four years just like any other startup but a lot of bootstrapped sort of businesses and, and more traditional businesses they don't have a vesting schedule or a vesting where you get your equity over time as you perform in the business and i think that's just a huge if i could do anything differently that would really be it is like having a, a good operating agreement and and setting up a vesting schedule because if he had left after you know two years maybe a little earlier then I would have been fine because I wouldn't have been hamstrung as far as making decisions and and someone can't just come in and like change everything that I'm doing or you know like ex you know even after you're not working in the company anymore like expensing everything and anything to the company so I'm just like you know, finances and in in partnerships, like in couples is a huge issue. It's like one of the, the leading causes of divorce and it's no different for businesses. If you're trying to run a business and someone else is essentially like taking the lifeblood out of the business, it, it's really difficult to keep going. So yeah, just a lot of resentment built up. And then probably 2019 was, we looked at potentially, like selling he wanted to sell I didn't really want to but I wanted him out of my life so I explored it and but then it, it came a point you know dealing with some private equity people it's like dealing with the devil you don't know I'm like I'd rather deal with the devil I know than than, than these ones so then it's like back and forth like then then a friend comes to me and, and mentions like oh why don't you just like buy him out and the first time I heard that I was like oh no that I couldn't do that. That's like way too much responsibility. And I also, well, and then I started thinking about it, but, but his sort of idea of what was fair to him was, I thought, was outrageous. So that took like a year to unwind that and, you know, align expectations. So yeah, it was just a very difficult time. And there's definitely like some trauma there from from just dealing with that because you're not only dealing with this where you, there's so many unknowns for me at least so 2020 like going into covid you know I another thing that I found out was our inventory manager had been embezzling from us so I'm dealing with this partnership issue, I'm dealing with this embezzlement. Everyone is like battened down the hatches like have a war chest. Covid's coming and I'm I'm like a soldier coming back from war. I'm like, "What? I do not have the I do not have the resources to deal with this right now." So so that's how like 2020 was and then, you know, we're just negotiating back and forth from like February and then we finally did the deal in September. But another complication was that he was also going through a really contentious personal divorce. And so that was making it like way more complicated. So now it's, you know, a month of the ex-wife needing to sign off and everything. And then I, I wasn't like friends with the ex-wife. Like we talked and hung out on occasion, but we weren't really like good friends. But then she's texting me about like what's going on. And I'm like, I'm like, I know that you're gonna have to sign off on the deal, but also I, I can't say anything because I don't want to piss my partner off. And so I'm like this diplomat trying to like, Toe the yes. line between what's okay. And then also dealing with COVID. So 2020 was just messy.
0: I mean, yeah, I can't even imagine, but the light at the end of the tunnel was that, like you said, September sort of the deal was done. He was bought out and you were able to take uh, full ownership of the business. Right?
1: Yeah. So and I decided I'm giving, I set up an equity pool for like some of my employees and cause I do want at some point to have either an exit or an investment, and I want them to be as bought in. With my mm. other partner, he, he didn't really want to do equity. I'm like, I think we, we, one of our core values is absolute ownership, yet we don't give any ownership. And so I, wanna, mm. I wanted to do something there. So I, I, I like changed some things structurally within the company. And I also have a great team. So they sort of held a lot of the weight last year as far as the day-to-day things went and i'm like i think it's going to happen this week i think we're going to get the deal done this week and then you know 6 months later we finally did it but it was funny cuz between march and september was one of these things where i kept thinking it was the next week it was going to get done cuz that's what i was being told and when it was eventually done it was kind of uh, anticlimactic because i kept expecting something else to come like come up and completely disrupt it
0: yeah. And then it's finally done and you're like, oh, OK, well, it's, it's just done. <laughs> here we go. And then I'm like, well, oh, where, my God, so much go pressure.
1: <laughs> now, now I have to get back, like get to work. But yeah, so I would definitely if I could, you know, say anything, it's like have a great operating agreement. It should cover everything from, you know, equity, obviously responsibilities. Like what happens if one person wants to sell? What happens if, some, if one of you dies? What happens if you get divorced? Like all of this stuff in a great operating agreement, it's it's like an if this, then that type scenario where you're not having to figure anything out because everything will have been figured out ahead of time. When you are, you know, when you don't expect to need it is when you should be writing it up because once you get to the point where you don't have it, it just, it's, ours is so bad. It was like, well, if you can't agree, you should just dissolve the company. In legal terms, wow. but it was like, well, that escalated quickly.
0: <laughs> Seriously, yeah, I mean that's, that's that's crazy. Well, again, appreciate you sharing that and being vulnerable and transparent, and also kudos to you for being able to survive it and get through it. And I think now the business is much better for it. And really excited to see where you guys go from here. And, and t- switching gears a little bit, I wanted to get to one of those next things, which was uh, sort of product expansion because you guys have really gone from, you know, initially I believe the first product was a self journal, right? Which is kind of that, that moleskin sort of design mm-hmm. formatted journal to now having, I don't even, how many SKUs do you have now?
1: Uh, I, th- I should know this, but I think about 25.
0: Yeah. I mean, and 25 is, is a lot. In fact, okay. So I'll, I'll start here. Why, why expand to more product SKUs and also sort of what's the approach and playbook behind launching new products to, to the audience and the community that you built?
1: So back when we first started, we were very much like productivity, type a goal setting, high achievement, which was everything that I had done for the last few years. And so I'm looking for frameworks around that. And Best Self as a product sort of ecosystem has evolved from that period of my life of doing all this stuff, hitting all these goals and then getting realizing there was actually more to life than goals, believe it or not. And, and so I distinctly remember where the New York Stock Exchange Bell the second time, we're doing this incredible once in a lifetime thing again and I realized that it was a kind of this hollow victory of, you know, I was getting divorced at the time. I was just not in, in. I was just not feeling myself. I hadn't been looking after my health. And so there was a lot of things that, yes, business-wise, and that, if that is my only metric of success, everything is going great. But there was this whole other part of my life that I wasn't focused on. And that made, like, that made all of those big, victories actually not that uh fun and so you know when i looked at best self as a product ecosystem i saw that we're only focusing on one thing right and so if we think of like what is your, really your best self it's having a balanced life of like yes you have your work projects but also you need to have a community you need to have relationships you need to have a good partner to share things with and that's kind of where best self sort of went into is like from my personal experience, what would, I, what would I have liked to see? And then what are some sort of, because relationships and intimacy and that sort of thing, like it's a whole other scope of projects, but how do we create some very simple tools that would help with that? And, it's, and I looked at it as sort of the Trojan horse of, idea of like, how do we make this feel like a game that's fun, but actually improves people's connections with other people. And, and that's kind of what led these discovery decks is what we call, call them around different topics. So it's like with your partners, with your friends, with your kids, I actually think relationships are the most important thing. And and whenever I really like going through a divorce, like for me personally, it wasn't even contentious. Like we were on good terms. It was the best possible one to go through because I I did, it was like 500 bucks. We agreed on everything, we met up, everything was good, yet it still completely made a mess of my life because you you basically are blowing up one part of your life and still having to run all the other parts of your life seamlessly and it just doesn't work. And what I realized is, if you look after your relationships, they, and have stability and like, growth and it's healthy, it actually feeds the rest of your life and you can focus on those projects. But if you ignore it and you're only focused on your business and you're not communicating well, that will end up blowing up that relationship, which will affect every other area of your life. And when I realized that, that's where I saw a huge missing piece of best self. And it felt like that is the area we have to go in. So people aren't focused only on this one area and realizing that they're ignoring every other part.
0: Yeah, I love that the the product line and the brand is really just like an extension of yourself and even the growth of yourself and what you've learned and the experiences that you've gone through and sort of these realizations that you've made about life in general and, and happiness and success and uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's maturing, right? It's as, as you mature, the brand and the product line matures as well, which is a really cool kind of unique phenomenon that not everyone can kind of speak to or, or at least even have the chance to, to express through you know, their business, through their brand, through the things that they, that they create. One of the ones that kind of piqued my interest was, I believe it might be sort of a newer one. It's the persuasion deck. I think you did it in collaboration with uh, a TikTok creator, if I'm not mistaken. I was curious if you could talk through sort of, you know, what that partnership looked like, you know, working with a, a creator, collaborating with other people on some of these product lines and how that came about.
1: Yeah. So the TikTok influencer was Max Klemenko. And what's funny is he submitted a video for, to be an ambassador or something like that and the team sent it to me and I was like, this guy's, like everything about it was like super professional, like better than our videos for our own product. It was just really good. And, and I was like, can I, like, I wanna to talk to this guy, like who is he? And so then I realized he's really big on TikTok and he's very big on, he does this thing with the balloon where he like pops it and then he tells you like a statistic on something and then explains like the science behind it. And so he was more interested and it was very aligned with my thinking of a lot of like influencers will put out a t-shirt with their name on it or like swag or something like that. And, and his whole thing was, yeah, he could do that, but it, it felt like a, a money grab and it wouldn't actually help people. And so he was wanting to brainstorm, okay, what could I create that would be helpful to my community? And he's actually like using what I know and not just doing something easy. So we worked with them for a few months on, we had a few different ideas. And the first one that I thought was the best, as far as things that we hadn't kind of touched yet was this persuasion deck, which was different like daily or things that you could do around persuasion that are very small, but you can do them often to, you know, get people to say yes more. And I know, Corey, you're very into mental models. I did your course. It's awesome. And I actually listen to it often sometimes because I'll forget something and then I'll go back and I'll listen to it. So I don't know if I'm your most, no like, podia. <laughs> like, if you could, uh, sometimes I was embarrassed. I was like, I wonder if Corey can see how many times I've listened to things because sometimes I'll just go back and, like, listen to it. But some of the stuff that, that actually, a bunch of the stuff that we did in the in the deck you also are interested in it and talk about it. So I'll have to send you one.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. And I'm also really flattered. Thank you for being a customer of mine and a consumer of the course. Cause not, not everyone even, you know, finishes a course and definitely not everyone goes back to course material. So that's the highest compliment to me and I appreciate that. And it's cool that to think that maybe I had a little teeny, 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 part of sort of the product creation for uh, the Persu- persuasion deck, which I'm gonna have to pick up a copy of. And I'll have a a link to the show notes for anyone else who wants to. So it's a really, really innovative, I love the whole, here's, what's been on my mind recently has been kind of this convergence of like brands and businesses working in collaboration with creators and personalities and just people in general and finding these really like win, win collaborations where it's, it's a, it's a good deal for both. And it's like, it's the best deal for both also Mm -hmm. where like you said on on the brand side it's not like it's not like they have to like give out you know a a really big chunk of revenue and an an affiliate deal where i have to fork over a whole bunch of money for something they're not sure is going to be like a a good sponsorship on the creator side they don't you know they don't feel like a sellout for just putting their name on a t-shirt or some sort of you know uncreative product but they also don't have to sort of, you know, sell their soul and, and commit to something that's maybe too much for them or become employed or, you know, give over the rights to everything. And uh, so these really, you know, creative boutique, unique brand collaborations are fascinating to me. And I love this case study.
1: Yeah, it was, it was fun. And Max's is, is awesome. So it was, it was a good thing to work on. And when we did some lives a couple of times, like we read the same book. So it's like actually just a fun dialogue of. Learning from him and and sort of sharing more about How we've used certain things in our like marketing that I've learned either from him or from you I think mm. recently I, I talked to the team about something that you talked about it was specifically Getting your audience to commit to something small so that they commit to something bigger later And so I was saying like if we can have people post like a picture and do some sort of competition, but all they have to do is this one tiny thing, which will make them more mm-hmm. likely to do something bigger or later. So we haven't done that yet, but I, I brought it up.
0: Yeah, I love that. Also very flattering, thank you. What well, that was gonna lead me to one of my next questions, which, which is actually to kind of dig into the marketing strategy a bit for, for Best Self and how it's changed, how it's evolved over time, like what it really looks like. Could you kind of just give me like the, you know, high level 30,000 foot view of, what you guys do to, you know, to serve and build the audience and what the marketing looks like behind the scenes.
1: Yeah. So it's funny that when we first started our marketing was very much like how to use the journal, how to set your goals? Here are some goal examples. And my whole thing was to, to sort of build the business. We had to figure out the product experience. And a lot of times people say that as like, okay, but we're talking about marketing, but part of the product experience is the marketing and like how do people use the product? So like, what does the first 10 minutes look like? What does the first week look like? And I've gotten products where I've, I've gotten it and I don't exactly know how to use it and things are complicated. So I already feel like a failure because I can't figure it out. And I know sometimes when you get the self journal, it can be a little overwhelming. You're like, "Oh God, I just wanted to set a goal, and now I have all the stuff. I have all this homework to do." And so, my whole thing was, you know, what? How do we simplify this and make it easy for them to know what to do so that they find success with the product? So it was both like showing them how to do it, like showing them case studies, figuring out, okay, what what is it? the result that they want, and like sharing people that have previously done that. Because one of the things it's like, yeah, you can buy ads to get people to your site and they can buy from you. But but if you do not find a way to, for them to find success with your product, you are constantly going to have to find more people and always be like feeding the hamster wheel. So I, I knew like figuring out how to retain them and, and like, basically what are all the questions and concerns that they have when they first get it and creating marketing content around that. And then what's happened with the new products is we actually have two different audiences now, because we came out with all this relationship product and we realized we have two different types of people, people that come in wanting a better relationship with their partner, or they get an icebreaker deck for their team. And so, then we had to sort of pivot what we talked about so that you're not coming in buying an intimacy deck and, re- and getting all the stuff on goal setting you're like wait a minute i don't like there's no outcome goal with the intimacy deck like what kind of weirdos are you so then it became okay how do we be very specific with how we target people because we realized we actually have two different audiences so we we have an email that we've been doing for four years. It's called Motivation Monday, and we don't sell anything in the email itself, but it's one of our like highest openers, highest open rate, and then also was bringing in the most revenue because people would like maybe not the most revenue, but it was bringing in revenue for something that wasn't selling anything. And so in that we're you know, we're introducing different concepts of like, relationships how relationships you know enhance productivity kind of like I mentioned it's just like if you're not looking after this stuff just like if you don't look after your health and you're laying in bed not very productive and it's only when we don't have something or something is at risk to losing it do we actually pay attention um, are grateful or like work to fix it and so our whole thing is you know an ounce of prevention is a pound of cure so Then we're like mixing the audiences a little bit so that when we offer them different things, it's not like, wait, what? Like, why am I being offered this if I bought the journal? Why am I being offered a relationship product and vice versa? So it's been a learning experience of figuring out this new customer and then sort of having, you know, we use Klaviyo for Shopify to to give them different flows based on what they buy.
0: Yeah, the audience expansion bit is, is interesting. It's always, it's a good problem to have, but it's still a problem, right? Because it's like, oh great. These are, it's a whole new group of people that we can serve and new product lines and new revenue and business expansion, but it's also complicated, right? And now you have to really get sophisticated with segmentation and personalization and how those audiences overlap and can you bring them together and cross sell, uh, upsell, things like that. I'm curious if you can speak a little bit to like what's really working and for other, you know, e-commerce brands out there who are growing, who want to scale, who want to, you know, invest for the future. I know you guys do a lot between ads, like I got target on Instagram and there was a fun, a couple of ads there between stories and and within the feed, you have a Facebook group, you do workshops. I would assume there's some component of like SEO as well, like what are the big kind of main drivers that really pull the brand forward and, you know, bring in the most uh, of the traffic.
1: So the most, I mean, obviously ads are still our, our biggest source of traffic, but we also have a really active Facebook community. We started that way back when we did our Kickstarter and at the start of anything, you have to be driving the conversation at the beginning until the community sort of becomes, you know, it, where it serves itself. So one thing that we've seen work really well is sort of making, showing the customers more than ourselves. So we created a contest way back when, and, and it, it was more just to engage the community, but it did a bunch more. So creating contests based on consuming the product that you sold them, so actually using it. So we did this thing was like, use it for 30 days, post it either in this group or on social, and you can block stuff out, but basically we were trying to have people create a habit of using the product, because you know, it only works if you use it. So. having people create that habit, and and if they did it for 30 days, it was like a $10 gift card that they got, and all they had to do was use the product that they bought, which is surprisingly not a huge sell for people. And what we realized when we did that is we created all this engagement, and then we also had a ton of customer-generated content, which I've paid, it's shocking how much you can pay for a photographer to take a picture of a notebook and still convert less than a crappy picture someone takes on their phone with crappy lighting and like a cat sitting Um, in the corner. So I think most people that aren't marketers are on social platforms to see their friends, to see what they're up to. And so our minds sort of filter out perfect images at this point. So we start to like not even see it. And so whenever your brand can look like something else in their feed that they actually want to see, their brain will not filter it out like they will other perfect images. And so I I say like, how do you get people to create content around your product? We had one, one girl, she didn't have a lot of followers on TikTok, but she recorded TikTok of just like... She wasn't an ambassador. She didn't have anything to do with us. She just was like, oh, I've been using this product with my boyfriend. And we started getting like a bunch of sales and I'm on our marketing meeting. And I'm like, who is selling this product? I'm like, who's marketing this product better than us? And then a friend of mine sent me, it's like, this is your product, sent me a TikTok video. And it was our product in the video and at the time, they were sending it to the, this to their to an Amazon listing, and it's funny because we just I think we just hired someone on Amazon that same week, and so of course they're like, guys crushing it, and I'm I'm see this TikTok I'm like, okay, this is, it's not that they're crushing it; it's just this person who had maybe like 500 followers has like a million views on this video within a few days, and. It was just a customer testimonial that looked organic because it was, and then they mentioned our site. So I think like, first of all, creating good product, making it easy for people to use and know how to find success with it. And then if there's some way that you could have them create content for you, like that looks like it's something that other people would wanna see in their feed, like that is the best way that I've seen. And that's how I shop. If something looks too polished i often just scroll by it and don't even look at it and it's only when something sort of catches my eye or or there's something on there that i'll dive in deeper
0: yeah it's it's always sort of the the unexpected accidental especially user-generated content that ends up performing way better than what you can create because you know maybe it's sort of we get in our own way right we step on our own toes we do ourselves a disservice trying to overthink, over-engineer what the marketing looks like. And speaking of oh, which, I wanted to ask
1: one, sorry, one quick thing that I just started doing is like when people review your product is like on a weekly basis, have someone like review that. Cause oftentimes it goes on your website and you don't actually look at what they're saying and you can pull uh-huh. quotes from that of like, literally the other day, someone said something like, Oh, this has worked really well for me and my wife we could just go on a website and pull up some prompts, but I love having it in in real life. It brings us closer, something like that. Right. So I was like, Mm. guys, this could just be like, put the product looking organic with this quote next to it with Justin from wherever and try that as an ad because Mm. it's social proof with the product and kind of beating an objection that I bet would come up of like, why would I, buy this product if I could just go on a website and, and find some questions to go through with my wife.
0: Love that. Yeah. I mean, customers are way better at, at than us at sort of creating ad copy and surfacing objections and even like surfacing value propositions of, you know, why they're using it, like what's the benefit.
1: Yeah.
0: One of the things I wanted to ask about that you've sort of alluded to a little bit, but I want to expand on was something that's worked. Uh, surprisingly well as well as something that kind of flopped or didn't work as well as you thought
1: what (laughs) there's so many things that have not worked gag products that are just for fun for Black Friday just don't bother wasting your time with it we thought it would be funny to come out with something called the worst self deck and it was essentially Mm -hmm. all these ways that you could be a a shitty person (laughs) And and it was just like not a good like it was funny and people find it funny but uh, but for the amount of effort to outcome ratio it just was not worth our time so I wouldn't I wouldn't waste my time as funny as I think it might be or or people on the team it's just like not ideal and then things that have worked well I mean I what has worked real I mean I think customer generated content like picking things from reviews. Like a social proof on the site, like really figuring out your conversion rate and working really hard to make your site as easy to buy from as possible, which sounds you know mm. very simple. But we didn't we didn't used to be very rigorous about testing things before we did it. It was very much like, oh, this looks cool. We should just put this up. And so now we will test things and keep testing them and then always be tweaking them to make sure that they they work how, how, how we want and that the conversion rate is above what we expect. And we always notice, oh, has the conversion rate dropped? Is something going on? And I think just keeping an eye on, on those numbers and understanding when something needs to be tweaked and when, you know, if it's a slow day, it's a slow day. But we've just gotten much more scientific about figuring out conversion rates
0: beginning mm. to wrap up here, I'd love to take a peek at your swipe file as a word to some marketing examples, campaigns ads landing pages, commercials that you think are worthy of saving, or cream of the crop, you know brands you admire, other examples that that you remember because they were so good. Can you walk me through a few of your favorites or you know one or two that come top of mind for you?
1: Yeah, so there was one um, by it's called the always pan and if people are listening to this and are on instagram you've probably seen it it's that like a uh, pink pan pink pan that shows you all the different ways you could use it it's like oh it's it has a little poorer thing on the side it's ceramic inside so it's easy to wipe and they literally show you there's a spatula sitting on it that like hooks into it so it's easy to, to use it has a What's the word like where you put pasta in it and you can drain it as like a little drainer inside right. of the pan? So it, it's basically the only pan that you, you could ever want and need, and it's awesome. But when I saw the ad, I was like, oh, this is like this is the pan that I've been wanting <laughs> that I didn't even know. And I actually sent it to my team. I, I always like screenshot things on my phone or send them a video because it was kind of like a, a d2c infomercial where they're showing you in, in like gift form all the different things it could do and i was like oh this is amazing because it shows you all the possible ways you could use it all the beating all the objections and it's easy to buy and i know i think literally i know about six people that have that pan.
0: i love it so yeah it was just a, such an easy buy such a a no brainer just with everything kind of packaged together.
1: Now I'm looking at my like screenshot folder to see what else I've seen recently, because I always screenshot like so many ads. I saw a planner one where it was, had a review in the thing. So I'll I'll use that. I get a lot of planner ads because obviously they, they know that that's what I like, but I think if I, I've realized, I don't know if you can see this, but can you see this on my phone? It was just a diagram about personal development. I'm like, oh, this caught my eye because it's like sketched and it looks more organic than maybe something else would. So basically organic content, or if you catch my attention in the first, you know, like the the Always Pan didn't look organic, like it was really well made, but it got my attention really quickly and suddenly I needed it.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. It's like either be organic so that you sort of like blend in with what looks normal and natural and like not sort of like a branded commercial thing or be like so good, so professional, so like creative Mm. that it does stand out and it, you know, it does catch your attention. You don't glaze over it.
1: Oh, one last thing that I've really liked is have you ever seen an ad, but it's like a text conversation where it's like, yeah, so I'd like, like Corey, yeah, the chat bubbles. It's like, Corey, I just found this awesome thing. I need you to get it or whatever. And the story, like, I've have watched whole videos on Facebook at times where it's a storytelling through these text bubbles, and so I, I like that idea, and it's worked well for a couple of different things that we've done because pe- it, mm. lo- you know, it's somewhat organic because people know it. And you don't have to explain it. And also like the bubble thing, like nobody's swiping past the bubbles until they know what they say.
0: Right. There's like the anticipation and suspense of, yeah. like, Oh, what's what's coming next and kind of curiosity because it's new and novel and you don't see it very often. That's a great example. I love that one. Well, final question for you. When I say everything is marketing, what does that mean to you? What, what comes to mind?
1: Everything is marketing i think for me it was until i listened to this podcast and you're explaining like you know if nobody buys your you're selling yourself you're selling your product you're selling the reason why someone would want to meet up with you you're selling why someone would want to date you you're basically always having to like put your best foot forward or like figure out how to get someone's attention to be able to get the outcome that you want for them or for yourself. And so in that case, you always have to be marketing something in order to make that happen.
0: I love it. Well, Catherine, it's been super, super fun conversation. Again, appreciate you giving us a behind the scenes peek, being vulnerable and transparent, being able to brainstorm and, and share a bunch of ideas with us. It's been an awesome, awesome conversation and appreciate you coming on.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Corey.
0: Thanks again to Catherine for coming on the show and make sure to check out best self as well as the persuasion deck that we talked about in the episode. If you can spare a moment, just one moment, click on the link in the show notes and pop on Twitter to thank her for sharing everything today. I've already pre-written a tweet for you. All you have to do is click replace her name and click send. And to wrap up here are a few of my takeaways. First of all, be careful who you go into business with some quick due diligence and paperwork upfront can save you literally millions of dollars down the line. And second, I love that they're paving the way for creative partnerships with creators like TikTokers. I think this is super smart and it's a great way to arbitrage new platforms without running ads or even creating your own content. And third, it's interesting how they've expanded out to new products and really built out a lot of SKUs over time. To grow revenue, you can either acquire new customers or you can upsell and cross-sell to customers with more products.